It's great to see you all here on this first Sunday of the new year. If you're a guest with us today, we're, we're glad you're here. It's a great way to start off the new year. If you're worshiping with us online, we are glad that you've tuned in to join us uh, this morning as well. We're starting a brand new series on the life of Elijah, just like us. And, and I must tell you, Elijah is one of my favorite Old Testament personalities. And there's a lot of reasons why he is. I just want to kind of summarize his life and ministry so you understand why I enjoy this person out of the Old Testament and why I think we can gain a lot of good information and challenge from studying his life. I really like Elijah because he was a rugged individual who stood up to wicked kings, treacherous queens, and lukewarm followers of God. I like Elijah because scripture points to him as the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And yet we do not have a three-point sermon that Elijah ever preached or an Old Testament prophetic book that he ever wrote. And while we know the birth and early life of so many Old Testament greats, I mean, you got Joseph and Moses and David and Solomon and Samuel, we don't know anything about Elijah until he sort of bursts upon the scene. We find him speaking to the king in the palace there in Samaria. Even the small town that he called home, Tishbe, has never been found by archaeologists. So maybe it was a place of little significance. I really like Elijah because the prophet Malachi could find no better example of the one who would precede the arrival of the Messiah. Malachi writes this, he said, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And 400 years later, Luke records that the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah, a priest in the temple of God in Jerusalem, and reminds him that his son, who was not yet born, his son John, would become the fulfillment of that passage. Luke records the angel's words. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And that John, John the Baptist, his rugged demeanor, his powerful preaching, his defiance of the king was a true reflection of the prophet Elijah. I, I really like Elijah because he's one of only two people in the, in the Bible that did not face death the way we know it. Whisked away in a chariot of fire, he was changed in the twinkling of an eye. And I don't know why. Why Elijah? Why not somebody else? Why not more like that? That's a good question for God one of these days. I like Elijah because alongside of Moses, he was one of two Old Testament characters that appeared to Jesus before the cross. It was that night, it was called the Mount of Transfiguration, when these two came back to encourage Jesus about what he was going to face at his crucifixion. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. When Jesus was on the cross, he cried out, and the people at the foot of the cross said, he's calling for Elijah. Do you realize the power and the presence of this man hundreds of years after his own death. But I think my favorite reason for liking Elijah is what we read in the book of James. James winds up his marvelous letter in chapter 5 with these words. He said, Elijah was a man just like us. Just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Uh, 
Elijah was an ordinary guy who served an extraordinary God. And what God accomplished through him is nothing short of awesome. I want you to know, Elijah experienced the highs and the lows, great victories, deep depression. Here is what excites me about a study of Elijah. If God can use an ordinary man like Elijah, and if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then I believe that God is still at work in us. God still uses ordinary people today. Aren't you glad? I'm glad. Because all of us in this room are, well, pretty ordinary. Who knows what God is up to in your life and what he has planned for you and how he's going to use you to impact eternity. So let me summarize Elijah this way. Elijah is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets and proclaimers. His name was synonymous with spiritual success for 900 years after his death. His fame surpassed the greatest and most famous of Israel's leaders. No past prophet was viewed with greater respect or held more promise of hope in the minds of the Jewish people than Elijah. So where do we begin to study this great Old Testament character's life? Well, can I suggest that we're going to start at the very end, the very last day, for just a few minutes. Elijah had the, I guess you'd call it the, the privilege of knowing his last day on earth. As a matter of fact, his protege and successor, Elisha, also knew it was Elijah's last day on earth. And he would not leave his mentor's side. Now, you say, well, what'd they do? On that day. Well, I don't know. The Bible doesn't really tell us a whole lot about what they did during that day, but there doesn't seem to be a spirit of anxiety or fear or dread. It doesn't seem to be a day spent in, in sorrow or sadness. There aren't tears here. I think it was a day like every other day leading up to that, but I think more than that, it, it, it was probably a day of reflection. Now, this is pure speculation on my part. But I think it was probably a day that the two of them spent reflecting on what a grand experience it had been serving God. Folks, I've often thought how wonderful it would be at this point in my life if I could have one more day with my grandparents to be able to reflect on their lives. I'd make sure I'd record it in some form or fashion. And I wouldn't say much. I'd just ask questions. Tell me again what it was like growing up as a child when you were a a, a kid. Uh, My grandmother, when she was a child, hopped trains. I can't envision that. I'd like to hear her tell me about hopping trains again. I'd like to know what it was like to to farm with a team of horses or, or mules or what it was like to start a dairy business or what it was like to battle and survive typhoid fever, which my grandfathers did. I would have all kinds of questions. What a day of reflection it would be. Well, I think that's what it was like for Elisha. I, I doubt if Elisha talked a lot, but I think he probably asked a lot of questions. Elijah, remind me about your calling in the Lord. Tell me again just how wicked and ugly that Jezebel was. What was it like that day in Zarephath when you raised the widow's son, her lifeless son, to walk and live again? Elijah, I want to hear one more time the story of you standing alone on Mount Carmel against 450 prophets of Baal. What was that like? And what happened when God answered with fire from heaven? Tell me everything, Elijah. Don't leave out any of the details. I want to remember this day forever.
What a day of delight it must have been. You, you, you see, I think God calls us to moments of delight. And, and I think this last day, for, for all of the maybe concerns that were in Elisha's heart about taking over for his mentor, I think it was a day of delightful reflection on the past. Because you see, I think Elijah lived in a spirit of delight as he served the Lord. And you say, okay, what does the word delight mean? Well, it means to take great pleasure in something or someone. It is a deed, a moment, or an experience that pleases. We speak of someone squealing with delight. And, and that expression, when you hear that, you just know that person is really, really happy. Those things that bring delight to us bring us also joy. They make us smile. They result in laughter. They remind us that there are good times and good things even in this broken world and sometimes difficult life. The sage of Sherwood Oaks, Tim Thompson, said, Delight is when I walk into a family gathering and realize there is no one I want to avoid. I'm not sure you could sum it up any better than that. <laughs> delight is a gift, and I believe that gift comes from the Lord himself. Psalm 18:19 says, He led me to a place of safety. He rescued me because he delights in me. True delights, delight originates with the Lord. He takes delight in us. Now, 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 folks, when I think of what the word delight means, and then I think of who I am, it is difficult for me to grasp that the God of the universe would take delight in me, or for that matter, any of us sinful, broken humans. You see, that's a pretty lofty thought. That the God of the universe takes delight in us. But I think that is a truth that directed Elijah's life. God sent him on some incredible adventures. And, and he knew the ups and downs of life. But through it all, I don't believe that Elijah ever lost his delight in the Lord. And I think if we're going to live in a way of, well... Making the most of every day in our life, we got to live in a spirit of delight in the Lord. <clears throat> you say, well, it was a lot easier for Elijah. Things were a lot better then. Things were a lot simpler then. He didn't have to live in a day and time like us. Oh, yeah? Really? That's what you think? To, to really understand Elijah's life, you need to understand what was going on in Jewish culture at the time. So let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 16. When Elijah comes on the scene, this is how it leads up to his appearance. Ahab, son of Omri, Ahab, by the way, is the king, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he had built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more and did more to provoke the Lord our God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel before him. Now, folks, that is God's perspective on the situation. You read that passage and things seem bleak at best. 
But I want you to know, if we had been living in Samaria at the time, we would have had a different view of things. Because things were not, well, things are not always what they appear to be. At a glance, times in Israel could not have been better. The economy was great. Israel was not at war. They were at peace. Life for the period was fairly comfortable. King Omri, Ahab's father, was responsible for building up the wealth of Israel. Israel at this time is a fairly wealthy nation. And the construction of Israel's capital city of Samaria was moving along marvelously. Ahab was brilliant. He was daring. He was charming. He was rich. Everything that you would want in a king except for the fact that he was terribly dishonest and frightfully ungodly. His name means God is a close relative. <laughs> I don't think Ahab knew that. He certainly didn't live that way. He would certainly not have been recognized as a relative of God. And yet, for the average citizen, the times couldn't have been better. Good economy, peace with neighboring nations, a handsome, popular king. What else would you want? No one realized that the nation was on the verge of collapse. In the midst of Samaria's financial wealth, there was great spiritual poverty. God's indictment on the king was unnerving. Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Now, how did that happen? I mean, Ahab is a, is a descendant of the Jewish kings. How, how did that happen? Well, one thing for sure is that Ahab made a huge mistake marrying the daughter of a Phoenician king and priest of the idol Baal. Jezebel is her name, and her name drips with the wicked legacy of her idolatrous ways. Jezebel, out of her own purse, supported 450 prophets of Baal. And the, and the worship of Baal became so dominant in the land of Israel that it began to squeeze out the voice of God. Historically speaking, Baal worship was the most degrading religious system ever devised by human beings. Some scholars believe that it was the, uh, on the Phoenician coast where refugees of the ancient cities of Sodom and Gomorrah settled after they fled that city. And, uh, and that, those cities were destroyed. When the Romans, the Romans now, who were hardly paragons of virtue themselves, encountered the worship of Baal, they were appalled and nauseated by it. What does that tell you about how awful this idolatry was? And all of this moral and spiritual decline began with a mismatched marriage. Can I suggest something to you? Guard your relationships well. Not just your marriage alone. Guard all of your relationships well. The people you hold close will change your life. We see it here. We see it yet today. Guard your relationships well. And did you notice that it said that Ahab trivialized the sins of those before him? When we start trivializing God's word and God's commands, as Ahab did, our lives are on the brink of collapse, folks. To this faltering nation, God had sent ordinary prophets in the past. But because things were good, the economy was good, because they were at peace, because everything seemed to be going well, the messages of the prophets fell on deaf ears. And so God finally sends this ordinary man, Elijah, with a message, an extraordinary message 
that would change everything. Now, folks, I've been writing sermons for about 44 years. Generally, they require several hours of my week to prepare, and I'm always, at the end of the week, wishing I had more time to spend. Elijah's first sermon took very little preparation and lasted all of 10 seconds to deliver. I know. I get it. <laughs> That's your favorite kind of sermon, too. Uh-huh. I know. Listen, if I ever preach a 10-second sermon, it will be because I drop dead in the 11th second, all right? Just so you know. But here's the deal. Of all the sermons I have ever written or ever will write, all put together, they will not have the impact of this 10-second sermon. And here's how it went. Elijah sta or Ahab's, Elijah stands before Ahab the king, and he says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And he walks out of the palace and the land dries up. God had had his fill. The nation needed a wake-up call. Here's the danger that we too face. When things are good, it can be easily uh, we can be easily lulled into spiritual slumber. We can be, well, masked into believing that things don't matter when they do. You see, the sermons of the previous prophets had fallen on deaf ears, and so this time God had to use an austere object lesson because the Israelites had missed the obvious. Things were falling apart. It was, should have been obvious to anybody with a spiritual brain, but they had missed the point. Now, here's, here's the problem. We sometimes also miss the obvious. A father was filling out the form to register his child for school. Under the form's question, language spoken at home, the father wrote, generally good, unless I get mad. <laughs> he missed the obvious. Do you ever miss the obvious? Guys, would you just kill the lights for a second? You see anything? Now, I can't see you nod, so you're going to have to respond to me. What do you see on the platform? I, I couldn't hear that. Anybody see a candle over there on the side? Okay, raise, raise the lights so I can see. How many of you saw that candle earlier in the service? Let me see your hands. Nobody? When, I, when we turned off the lights, could you see the candle? Yeah, okay. It's, it's pretty obvious when you turn off the lights. You see, when does a candle shine brightest? In the darkness, obviously. Author Jonathan Kahn writes this. He said, the light of a candle shining in daylight is in harmony with its surroundings. But the light shining in darkness is in marked contrast to its surroundings and against the darkness. The candle in the day represents the believer who shines in the midst of of Christians. Its light blends in with the surrounding culture. The candle in the night represents the believer who shines in the midst of an unchristian environment. If you had a choice, which would you rather be, a candle of the day or a candle of the night? Being the candle of the day is easier, but it's the candle of the night that changes the world. You see, it's pretty easy to shine here. But you don't, 
you don't stand out. In, in, in this place, we don't stand out as we shine a reflection of the Lord because we're in the midst of others who are shining. But it is in a darker world. It isn't in a dismal world. It is in a hurting world. It, it is in a painful world where the light of hope and delight in Jesus needs to shine brightest. So the question needs to be answered. Do you want to be a candlelight of the day or do you want to be a candle of the night? Because you see, Elijah... Elijah was a candle of the night, and he changed his world. We can wring our hands in despair at the problems around us, or we can light the way to show folks that there is a hope in the midst of our gloom and despair. Is God still working? Well, of course he is. Is he still making a difference through his kingdom, the church? Absolutely. Could he use someone like you or me in this day and time to be his light? As hard as it may be to believe, yes, he wants to use us as his lights. And I think, you say, well, how do, I, how do I shine brightly? Well, I think it depends on how closely you, you are in wanting to be a light. I, I think it depends on how you choose to reflect his light. And I think it depends on how we reflect God's blessings in our lives. And that goes back to our original theme of, of delight, we know that God takes delight in us. I, but I think the really heartfelt question is, do we take delight in him? Psalm 37, verse 1 and following says, Don't worry about the wicked or envy those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will fade away. Like the spring flowers, they will soon wither. Trust in the Lord and do good. Then you will live safely in the land and prosper. Take delight in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit everything you do to the Lord. Trust him and he will help you. The psalmist reminds us that if we take delight in the Lord, that he will give us the desires of our heart. Not the superficial cravings of our life, but the genuine desires of our heart. And one of those gifts that I believe he gives is the ability to find delight in this dark and dismal world. I believe... That through the ups and downs, Elijah continued to delight in the Lord. Consequently, nothing permanently shook him. Oh, yeah, he, he experienced deep depression. We're going to talk about it down the road. But he never lost his faith in God or the mission that God called him to do. Now, does that describe your attitude here at the beginning of the year? Are, are you one who is taking delight in the Lord, knowing that no matter what happens, no matter what the news holds, no matter what brokenness you may experience, Will you be able to take delight in the Lord? And so well, how do we do that? Well, the, the psalmist really does a great job of laying it out for us here. In the first place, he says, don't worry about or envy those who do wrong. Have you ever found yourself thinking, look at that person. Just look at them. They're not a person of faith. They don't even believe in God. And look, everything is going their way. I don't get it. I try to follow God and I try to be a good Christian. And I've just got problem after problem after problem. And look at that person. They're not even following God and everything just seems to be following in place. You ever feel that way when you look at the world? I, you have to be careful. That's an easy trap to fall into. In the first place, remember that looks are deceiving. Things are not always what they seem to be. Folks, a firefly is not a fly. It's a beetle. A prairie dog is not a dog. It's a rodent. India ink is not from India. It's from China or Egypt. A hamburger has no ham in it. Things are not 
always how they appear. It may look like somebody's doing well, but you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. And here's what the psalmist says. Their star will fade. Their flower will wither. At some point in time, folks, God brings everything back to justice. God takes care of it. So, so don't, don't envy the evil because it appears like things are going well. It isn't. They have their day coming. Here's the second thing. It says, trust God and keep doing what is good, even if no one sees or cares. Here's what I want you to know. God sees and God cares, and that's enough. If nobody else knows, it's okay. God knows. Trust is the second half of faith. Sometimes we think of faith as just believing, but believing is not faith. Faith is the combination of believing and trusting. And twice in this passage, the psalmist says, trust in the Lord. Belief alone is not enough. And remember, we walk by faith, not by sight in this world. Warren Bennis wrote this. He said, trust is the emotional glue that binds followers and leaders together. So I'm going to ask you, are you glued to God? Do you trust him even when you cannot see the direction you're headed? And then he says, commit everything you do to the Lord. I love the word translated commit here. It is not a synonym for trust. The psalmist is not being redundant. The word literally is to roll one's way onto God. Now that's cumbersome English, but it basically means to dislodge the burden from your shoulders and place it or lay it on God. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Dislodge the burden from your shoulders and lay it on God. What a welcoming thought. I'm wondering if that concept was in Peter's mind when he wrote, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. If you want to find delight, take this life, take the burden from your shoulders and lay it on God. He invites us to do that. So take him at his word. Trust him with your worries, your cares, and your concerns. And here's the thing you need to understand about this psalm. David wrote this psalm as an old man reflecting on the past and rejoicing in the God of his life and his heritage. Do you want to know, do you want to know how to take delight in the Lord? Then spend some time reflecting on your past. As a matter of fact, this year, you ready? Okay. This year, instead of making your resolutions... Mark your reflections. I don't care about your resolutions. I do care that you spend some time reflecting on the blessings of God. Don't make your uh, uh, resolutions. Mark your reflections. How do you do that? Well, carve out some quiet time. I I do not do this well. I'm just going to confess to you. I'm not good at stopping and just being quiet. But I've learned this, that you cannot reflect in the noise and the clutter of everything that's going on around you. The other night, I had the privilege of uh, being able to take my oldest grandson to an IU game. Now, he sat in the first half on my left side. Uh, This is my bad ear. He was looking away from me and trying to talk to me in the midst of assembly hall. It was a futile effort. Even when I asked him to look at me and I turned to him my good ear, I still couldn't hardly hear him in the midst of all that tumult. Well, the same thing is true when we reflect. 
In the midst of all the confusion of life, if you try to reflect, you'll get distracted and you won't be able to see or understand or think or, or be honest with who God has blessed you to be and what God has blessed you with through the year. So find some quiet time. Here's the second thing. Write down your reflections. Now, we, we've got some uh, just simple little journals here. They, they have the same cover uh, as the uh, bulletin, and so they're going to be on the table outside when you go out this morning. And it's for this series. And on the inside, there are sections where for the next sermons in this series, you can write down and answer these questions. And the first one is simply this. What were your greatest areas of delight in 2018? Uh, also, these questions will also be on uh, the website in case you want to put it in your own kind of a journal at, at home. But it's, it's a way of you just pausing and reflecting and writing down. And here's the thing about it. On the day when things just kind of fall apart and you're feeling miserable, then you pull that out and you look at all the blessings of the past year. You can, go back, you can go back farther than that, but at least do the last year. What has God done for you in 2018? And I'm telling you, it'll bring encouragement on the bad days. And then pray a prayer of thanks for God's blessing. Every day of life is special. Don't forget how special every morning that you get up is as, as we launch out into this new year. Start this year with an attitude of thankfulness for the gifts of God. There are so many. I wish I knew who first said it, but it is worth contemplating as we wind up. Anyone can dig in the dirt and find dirt. It takes someone special to dig in the dirt and find gold. This year, here at the threshold of this year, will you take time to do some digging to unearth God's gold of the past? You see, take delight in him, and it will get you through the tough times, the dark times. Let your light shine in such a way that in the dark moments of life, people may see that you take your delight in the Lord and be drawn to him as well. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.